We've always agreed as a society that the children in particular need special protection. And I see people pushing against that line way more now than at any other time. People are saying that 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds can make extremely serious and life-altering permanent decisions about themselves. Today I sit down with Zuby, rapper, author, fitness coach, and political commentator to discuss our current political moment from transgender athletes in women's sports to COVID disinformation to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We talk too much now in the West about rights and not enough about responsibility. I have a right to do this. This is my right. Me, 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 me. It's really narcissistic and immature. But the rights part only works with the responsibility part. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait, call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377 or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Subi, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Just prior to the interview, I was looking at under your music video for Underrated. You know, I think I think you it came out in February, and it's it's almost like a kind of Marvel comic book story, from what I can tell. So. I thought to myself, let's hear your origin story. Yeah, sure thing. So I was born in the UK, in England to be precise. My family, my parents are originally from Nigeria. My dad's a doctor and my mom actually used to be a journalist. And I'm youngest of five kids. After living in the UK for a short time, my family actually moved to Saudi Arabia. Uh, we moved out there. So all my earliest memories start in Saudi Arabia. I went to preschool there, kindergarten. I was in the school system there up until fifth grade. I actually went to an international school, so American curriculum. Most of my teachers were American. Lots of my friends were American and from other parts of the world. So if anyone's wondering where this accent comes from, it's actually from growing up in Saudi Arabia. When I was 11 years old, I went to boarding school in the UK. So I was still living in Saudi Arabia, but back and forth between the two countries multiple times per year. So during term time, I'd be in the UK. Outside of that, I'd be back in Saudi Arabia. I was a good student. I did really well in school. I got into Oxford University. I studied computer science there, graduated when I was 20. And I also started my music career when I was in university as well. So I wrote and released my first album, which was called Commercial Underground, way back in 2006. That was my very first independent release, and that's how my music career kicked off. And then I worked in the corporate world for three years, and in 2011, I took the plunge to go become a full-time musician. So the journey I'm currently on, I've been doing full-time for approaching 11 years now. And over the course of time, my audience has grown very significantly. I've added additional things to what I do. So it started out with me really just being a rapper and putting out multiple albums and releases and touring around the UK and in different countries. And then in 2019, I started my podcast, Real Talk with Zuby. It's also when I had my viral explosion where I uh, identified as a woman and broke the British women's deadlift record and millions of people discovered me through that. It's also when I wrote and released my very first book, which was a fitness book called Strong Advice, which has sold well independently. And 2019 was a big transition year for me. Most people who know me now discovered me in the past three years. So it's kind of interesting because I've been, you know, it's 16 years between now and when I put out my first album, but I'd say probably, I don't know, 98, 99% of people who are aware of who I am 
only discovered me in the past three years. So it's been an interesting journey. And um, as far as I'm concerned, it's just beginning. And so, you know, what possessed you to do this deadlift uh, scene? Okay. This goes back to, I don't know, from 2015 to 2016, I'd actually been keeping an eye on this issue and I'd been seeing this notion of people being able to supposedly be whatever gender they so-called identify as. And I remember back in 2015, 2016, 2017, I was having conversations privately with friends and family and I was saying, well, this is inevitably gonna lead to you know, men identifying as women and entering their private spaces or even competing against them in sport and so on and so forth. And I remember about six or seven years ago, people telling me like, come on, Zumi, that's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. Uh, you're, you're being a little too alarmist on this and so on. But to me, it was an inevitable result of that way, way of thinking. I mean, I was like, well, there's plenty of incentive for that to happen. So why would it not? And then I started seeing actual stories popping up in the world of MMA, athletics, um, rugby, soccer, different sports where this was happening. Biological males were competing against women and in many cases completely thrashing them, breaking their records and so on. As you can see in the past few years, this has now happened in swimming, in weightlifting, in other athletic events and so on. And um, so I was seeing all that happening. And in t that day before I tweeted that, before I put out that infamous tweet, I'd seen two stories out of the USA. I was in the UK at the time, but I'd seen two stories from the States where this had actually happened in high school. Two different athletic events and both won female competitions, won by male competitors. And I was just like, this is, this is so silly, this is crazy. And out of curiosity, I thought, well, I'm, I'm actually really good at deadlifting. Like, I'm a strong guy. I wonder what the British women's deadlift record is in my weight class. And so I did a quick search and I think it was 210 kilos. Um, my personal best was 275, so I was like, oh wow, I, I can lift more than 100 pounds more than the female record. And I actually just had that video on my phone already from one of my previous training sessions where I was doing 230. So it's a video of me, nine second video, just lifting 230 kilos very easily and walking away from it. So I just went on Twitter that morning. I had 18,000 followers at the time. And I just tweeted something along, along the lines of, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women in 2019. So watch me destroy the British women's deadlift record without trying. P.S. I identified as a woman whilst lifting the weight. Don't be a bigot. So I just put that out there. I thought it was kind of funny. I thought, okay, if I think it's funny, a few other people will think it's funny. And very quickly, it caught a life of its own. I think within 10 minutes, it had over 10,000 views. It hit 100,000 views within the first two hours and it just kept going and going. The numbers were just increasing, increasing likes, retweets, shares. It was just, it just went crazy. By the time I went to bed that night, it had over 300,000 views. I woke up in the morning, it's over half a million and hit a million later that day. And by the second day, I, I was just starting getting, I started getting contacted by various media platforms because this video was just exploding on the internet. So it was really confusing to me because it was, it wasn't, so many people ask if, did I, did I pre-plan that or, did I, did I work at all? It's like, no, I just put that out there. Like I put out many other comments and statements and it just, it just set the world on fire. So I started getting contacted by big media publications from the, the BBC to, to Sky News to Fox News here in the States and various podcasters and so on. And then about two weeks into all of this, I wake up one day and lots of people are like, man, Zuby, uh, Joe Rogan just mentioned you on his podcast. Joe Rogan just shouted you out. I'm like, wait, what is going on? And then he'd done a podcast with uh, the comedian Brian Callen and he just, they did a whole segment talking about this tweet and they pulled it up and he gave me a shout out and that's when he started following me on Twitter and he actually DM'd me and uh, we, had a, we had a little chat where he was just telling me how funny he thought it was. And so this, this went on honestly for, for a couple months and I was, I kept tweeting as usual and putting my stuff out there and letting people know about my music and my podcast and all the other stuff that I do. And it just snowballed. A few months later, I was able to go out to the USA in September 2019, September to November 2019. I was here in the States, um, did some massive interviews, first appearance on the Joe Rogan, on the Joe Rogan experience. Um, I did a Sunday special episode with Ben Shapiro. I was on Tucker Carlson's show, Candace Owens' show, dozens and dozens of smaller podcasts. And that's also how, that was the year the USA discovered me. Um, 
I actually really enjoyed listening to Underrated. I was frankly surprised because it's just, it's not, it's, I have nothing against Rob. I just don't happen to listen to a lot of it. I don't get a lot of access in it. There's, there's a few really interesting things in it. One, you mentioned that people see you as controversial. So I want to touch on that a little bit. Who is it that's seeing you as controversial? Are people trying to cancel you? The other piece, though, is it sounded like you had a lot of, you know, kind of self-determination in terms of your income streams, which may, maybe made it harder for that to happen. So tell me about that. In terms of the first question, the controversial aspect, that, that's one thing I, I constantly find funny. I find it hilarious that people think that I'm, that there are people who deem me controversial because if, I think in a sane world, I would be one of the least controversial people in it. Um, I'm, in, in terms of things that people traditionally used to consider controversial or subversive or, you know, taboo or whatever, like I'm pretty, I'm a pretty straight down the line guy. I mean, this is just how I was raised. I've never been someone who swears a lot. Um, I don't drink alcohol at all. I've never done any drugs. I've never even smoked a cigarette. Like, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. And when it comes to my opinions and my positions on things, they're they're pretty sane. I mean, one of the things I get most often is people thanking me for common sense, right? People thinking that, wow, there's such an absence of common sense and honesty these days, and this person is saying the things that, you know, billions of people are thinking but perhaps not saying. And it's also interesting because a lot of what I say, I've been saying since 2006. You can listen to my album from 2006. You'll hear you'll hear quite a few of the same themes and messages and ideas and it wasn't controversial then. Um, if anything, people thought it was too uh, milk toast or, or boring and not edgy enough and you know, this is a you know, Oxford boy trying to rap and he's got nothing interesting to say kind of thing. But I think that Western society has become so debased in that relatively short period of time that saying really basic things now, um, you know, what's really funny, on the very first song on my very first album, I have a lyric where I say, um, my ideas are inconceivable like men giving birth. I said that in 2006. And we're literally living in a time now where people are advocating and arguing that men can indeed give birth, right? So I, I put that out, I said that as a, it's such a ridiculous idea that is completely inconceivable, right? The wordplay there, inconceivable. And 16 years later, <laughs> Even less than 16 years later, we're now. This is now a debate. What is a woman? You know, what what does that word even mean? What is a man? What is a woman? What do, what are what are sex and gender? All these things. And so, it's so odd. I mean, if you said that men don't give birth 10 years ago, no one would bat an eyelid. They say yes, of course. Even the most liberal person, the most progressive so-called person, would completely agree with you. If you said that males shouldn't compete against females in sports. There, there's various issues. I use that particular one because it's such a, it's such an obvious one, just showing how, how odd things have become. Um, but yeah, the, so I, I, I don't think that most people consider me super controversial, but I think that those who do are very loud, and like to have their feelings. I won't even say thoughts. They like to have their feelings. Um, heard by anybody and they've been causing a lot of chaos in our countries over the last few years. So I simply am trying to, you know, I, I don't want to tell people what to think, but I want to tell people to think. I want to encourage thought. I want to encourage people to strive for the truth. This doesn't mean we're always going to agree on everything or everyone's going to have the same opinion, but I think we, we, we've lost I, th I think as a culture and as a society, the notion that truth in itself, number one, exists, and number two, is deeply important, has really been eroded. It's really been eroded. You see this from individuals to institutions, academia. I mean, academia should be the pursuit of truth, and it's not now. It's the pursuit of various forms of indoctrination and activist agendas. The media, the goal of the news media should be absolutely to pursue truth and report on truth. And that doesn't seem to be the, the interest anymore, right? You know, politics has never been purely about truth. I, I don't think that's ever been the case, but I, I do feel that even in the world of politics, it's become, it's become more dishonest, it's become more disingenuous. And the general conversations around so many issues have just become very much games of euphemisms and mental gymnastics and trying to 
attack and demonize and straw man, man other people and other opinions. And I find it all pretty, pretty tiresome, which is why I, I speak out against it. And I wish more people were doing the same. So I was going to ask you, you mentioned this word debased, and then you kind of qualified it a little bit. It was interesting. And so you started talking about how you see perhaps society has become you know, more debased. But tell me, what, what, what do you exactly mean by that? When I say debased, I mean unmoored and unrooted from objectivity and reality and wholesomeness and righteousness and goodness and morality. All of this stuff is becoming completely subjective and up for debate, which is really dangerous. I mean, there are, there, there's a lot of gray in the world. There are plenty of things where there isn't just a, a clear, correct answer or, you know, most, most things, especially when you're taking something as complex as human societies, a, a lot of things are, are nuanced and there are trade-offs, right? Everything's trade-offs. If you're really thinking about, especially in the world of politics, everything is a trade-off, right? It's always a trade-off. It, it's rarely something is all good or all bad or, you know, just benefits or anything like that. It, it's, it's constantly, it's constantly trade-offs. Um, but there are also things which are black and white. Two plus two does equal four. Now, I've seen people who claim to be academics on social media arguing, no, it, it could equal five, it could equal three. And that's dangerous. It's not just foolish and incorrect, it, it, it's actually dangerous. Because if you can, I mean, it's Orwellian by definition. If you can convince people that two plus two equals five, then you can convince them of anything. What do they say? If you can make people believe absurdities, you can get them to commit atrocities. And we've seen this play out multiple times over the centuries, just the last century alone. We've seen that in multiple countries. And so this has a real, a real world impact, right? There are a few things, again, lots of things we can debate, but there are a few things more basic and essential and binary in biology than the fact that animal species have male and female and that they're not interchangeable and that they, yes, there's an overlap in roles, but they are different and there are certain roles that are unique to each sex. Every single person on this earth was birthed from a woman, all of us, um, every human who's ever walked the planet. This isn't just unique to, to humans, um, apart from perhaps seahorses. Um, I think every, every, in every animal it's the female who gives birth. And this shouldn't be political, it shouldn't be a culture war issue, it shouldn't be something that's hotly contested or whatever, but that, that's, that's literally where, where we are. And oftentimes I think people know better and people know the truth, but we combine this with an epidemic, what I call a pandemic of cowardice, where people who even know the truth are afraid to say it. And I can understand how we've gotten here because oftentimes people who want to tell the truth or at least try to see it or even ask questions are being attacked, are being, are being persecuted, are being called names, are being deplatformed on social media or censored, or uh, people are socially trying to ostracize them and so on and so forth. So I think you combine these two things together and you've got a debased society. The same thing happens with, with morality. Again, with morality, there are, there are gray areas, right? We can all think of ideas and concepts where it's, like, it's not totally clear cut what is right or what is wrong or what does more harm or what does more good and so on. But there have to be things where we can be like, okay, we have to draw certain hard lines and boundaries and say this line should not and cannot be crossed, right? Um, one of those lines that I see being er eroded right now is when it comes to children, okay? So even the most libertarian-minded person in the world um, generally would, would, would argue that when it comes to, uh, certainly when it comes to the law, um, adults, if they're not harming anybody, should, most, should generally be free to do, to do as they like. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they should, far from it, but should have the freedom to, right? You, 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 the government shouldn't be banning you from you know, controlling what, you're, what you eat or don't, like you shouldn't be a glutton and you shouldn't stuff yourself with so much food that you die, um, but you have, a, you, have, you have a right to, you know, like your, your right to freedom of speech. It doesn't mean you should say absolutely anything with, and assume there's no consequence to it or anything, but 
you, you do have the right to say what you want and to say what you believe. Um, but we've always agreed as a society that the children in particular need special protection. And I see that line, I see people pushing against that line way more now than at any other time in my life. People are saying that 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds can make extremely serious and life-altering permanent decisions about themselves, right? And that used to be a line where, again, regardless of someone's politics, it was, it was never a political issue. It wasn't like, okay, this side of the political aisle is trying to protect children and this side is not. But that's, that's what's going on. And you're seeing it happening in schools. In, you know, maybe it started in universities primarily, but it's trickled down now to kindergartners, you know, six-year-olds, people wanting to teach six-year-olds about all kinds of sex and sexuality-related topics and so on. Um, I'd say even what, even what they're doing with um, even even what they are doing with this uh, bizarre bet back vaccination effort, where they're they're now trying to jab up babies for something that they have zero risk for, and have had zero risk for for this whole time, and which we know, and people aren't interested. You know, all you're doing is introducing risk. There's no upside to it, apart from for the pharmaceutical companies and their and their profits. And that's a line, again, that's being crossed. You, you, someone can't make the argument that that's to protect children because it, it's not. Um, and I think that line is, that's not a line we want to cross. And lowering the age of consent around getting vaccines, right? That was mm -hmm. a, that's another element. And mm -hmm. even just what I've been seeing is, frankly, you know, people normalizing pedophilia, pedophilia. moving yeah. down that down that way mm -hmm. drag queen shows for children bringing you know having men stripping and twerking in front of five-year-olds i mean i don't know how anyone in their right mind could not i mean the, the even saying that sentence out of my mouth feels like gross like i'm like how is that even a reality why am i seeing videos of of grown men men by the way like dancing for little kids and them throwing money at them or, or little kids dancing for, for grown men in gay clubs and people are put like how on earth can anyone look at that and say oh yeah that's that's good that's you know we should tolerate that that's that's progressive that that's it's just it's so far beyond what it's like a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah kind of situation um, and yeah, that, that concerns me. That concerns me a lot because one, one, one reason this stuff concerns me a lot is because I think in the Western world, the UK, the USA, Canada, parts of Western Europe and so on, things are so good in so many ways. And I don't want this, and it's taken a long time to get here. If you, if you look at where the USA was in 1922, which is only 100 years ago, which is just one person's lifetime, if you look at the progress that's been made in terms of, you know, fighting against discrimination and violence and expanding rights and equality and fairness across all different populations, men, women, um, gay people, people of different races, like so much progress has actually been made both legally and socially. And I feel like over the past decade, people have been moving to bring it backwards, right? People who call themselves progressives are often regressing the society. They're trying to go back to this type of judging, you know, we, we, got a, we, we, we grew up saying, you know, you don't judge people based on their, their race and their skin color and these immutable, and, and they're, they're now saying, no, no, you, you, you should, you must, right? To be anti-racist, you must see race. You must judge white people this way. You must talk to black people this way. You must put this at the forefront. There's people advocating for segregation Again, there's people advocating for uh, just, you know, the, even, again, the whole, the whole gender ideology stuff and what, what that's doing to the, the basic rights and, of women and ability for them to have fairness in their competitions and be safe in places like prisons and changing rooms and so on. And I'm like, this is all regressive. These are steps, these are steps backwards. And so I'm very vocal on it, largely because I, I recognize and appreciate how good things are in so many ways, but it's like, again, if you, if you don't moor society back towards something morally and objectively, then the boat just drifts out into the waves and, you know, like a time could come where it, it's, it's too late to bring it 
to bring it back to shore. And I, I feel like a lot of people think it's already there. They're kind of looking up and going, oh my gosh, like we've, we've drifted off pretty far in my lifetime. What's, uh, what, what's going on here? How do we get this back? You know, one of the things I've observed, my parents escaped from communist Poland in the 70s. I was born here, grew up, you know, in the 80s. I think I figured out that the 80s were probably the freest society. And we just thought this is how the world is, right? And even the stories from my parents who left for very specific reasons, they, they wanted to be in a free society, didn't really get it because, well, it's hard to imagine what it would be like because everything is so free and open. And so I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned you lived quite a bit of time in Saudi Arabia. That's a mm. very different reality. I that certainly must have informed your thinking about, you know, how good we have it. And mm. I, I see a lot of people today just simply don't grasp that. They imagine that this is, you know, you hear people say this is the most racist society in the history of the world. This is the most terrible in so many different ways, right? Well, I think it's good to ask those people if they think they have it better or worse than their, than their grandparents. And that normally sobers people up a little bit, right? There might be, again, there might be some odd exception where someone's grandfather or grandma had it better than they do, but in most cases, whether they are someone whose family has been in this country or my country the, the whole time, or they, they've, they've immigrated from elsewhere, so on, there, there are very few people who can honestly say, who are alive in 2020, who could honestly say, yeah, well, you know, my grandparents or my great-grandparents had it easier than me, you know, generally speaking. Um, that's not the case, and, and, that's a, and that's a good thing, right? That shows the, that shows the progress. Um, I think a mistake people make, though, and you, you sort of alluded to this earlier, is that I think people imagine that societies just continually improve mm -hmm. just, just by default mm -hmm. and that there are never regressions or corrections or times when things, things go backwards or go sideways for a decade or two and so on. And that's not, that's not the truth. That's not true. I think over the long period of time, humanity generally improves in various ways but i don't number one i don't think it's just by deep by by ne by nature right i think it takes it takes effort it takes vigilance it takes intelligence it takes wisdom it takes maturity to avoid us from we have all these sort of individual and collective mental pitfalls and things that we're honestly not just not that great at especially when you introduce an element such as such as fear right or when you have uh elements of propaganda and so on and so forth like human the human brain is not is not perfect as, as, as smart as we are uh people can also be very very stupid especially in large numbers and don't always act in a way that is rational you know, people get very emotional and you can get caught up in in all sorts of things and i think that it's important for us all to have the humility to, to recognize that. I think it's also good for us to have the humility of having perspective and gratitude. There's nothing wrong, it's good for people to want society to be better. I think everybody, almost everybody wants society to be better. Now, how they determine better and how they define it might differ somewhat from individual to individual, um, but there, there, that has to be done with some, some humility. Um, a, as we know, when people have these grand notions of uh, wanting to create some type of utopia or wanting to perfect the human race or wanting to do that, it very rapidly turns into totalitarianism and dystopia and mass murder and so on. We've seen this with under different names, in different countries, with different iterations. And I think we need to, it's something we always just have to be careful with, wanting to maintain the things that are good and that are working which I think, again, in a proper society, to, to use the political terms, that is really the role of conservatives, is to be vigilant about protecting the things that are good and righteous and moral and which help, you know, have helped us to make it this far. Um, whilst the role of you know, good liberals or good progressives should be to see and analyze and propose functioning changes that don't have tons of downsides, have more upsides than downsides, to find those areas, find, oh, find those people who are being excluded and you know, bring, bring them towards equality or to increase tolerance in this area or to allow some flexibility here and there, right? They, 
there aren't, there aren't many people who want just nothing to ever change. And there aren't really people who want everything to change either, even if, even if they say so. That's just not the reality of their lives. Like everybody has elements of both of these things. There's the things we want to maintain and there are the things that we think, okay, let's try to change this. But if you just try to change everything, you just want to rip down the past 200 plus years of the USA and throw it all away and burn it all. And you know, you think in your mind that, oh, I'm going to create this better version of it a word of caution, right? Like there's a word of caution in that because that, that level of, of hubris and, and arrogance is, is guaranteed to create chaos. It's highly unlikely that the version you, that, that person builds or that, that group builds is going to be uh, better than what, what currently exists. I, I think it's a really, really arrogant way of thinking and very, very destructive. So all that said, I think, um, it's important for us to have that perspective and gratitude and, and be, be grateful for the progress that's been made. It doesn't mean uh, it stops here and everything is done and it's finished and there's no more issues anymore or anything like that. Um, but yeah, go, go for incremental changes and, and be careful that the things we're trying to... Also be careful that we're not trying to um, solve problems that don't exist. That's a big one that I see a lot. People trying to solve problems that aren't actually problems and where they can't probably even explain why it's a problem. They've just kind of picked it out and seen something and they, they, they're going for it. And also to make sure that the solutions um, are unlikely to create more problems than what we think they could be solving. When you have a situation where people stop being able to rely on knowing that two plus two equals four, that this is a man, this is a woman, all these kinds of things which traditionally the definitions are very clear and you can root yourself there in this world where there's so much gray, right, as well, of course, that we have to deal with. Suddenly everything becomes gray. Yeah. So what is the connection between that? And I think you kind of alluded that you head into totalitarianism. You started talking about that just now in, in that kind of a situation. Is that, is that how you see it? People need to be able to orient themselves in the world. And you can't orient yourselves if everything is gray. You, 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 you can't. It leads to, it leads to a form of mental chaos, which can often lead to nihilism. They can, it can lead to the, um, it can lead to the infiltration of particularly dangerous ideologies that give someone something to just grasp on or a group to join or something like that. Um, it also allows people to be manipulated because when people are trying to orient themselves, they tend to look up, right? And so if there's some maniacal figure or dictator type of person or authoritarian who is then giving them, it's easier to sell people on a narrative that way, right? I mean, if you go, if you go back to, uh, this, is, this is slightly different, but I think it's relevant. I mean, if you look at the conditions that led to the rise of someone like Hitler, Right? It was that you look at the situation that the German society was in post-World War I and leading up to that, and there, people were disoriented, there was a lack of hope, there was discouragement. There, it, it wasn't like, oh, okay, society was ticking along fine and then you know, this guy came along. It's like, no, people were looking, they were, they were, they were looking for certain things. They were looking for meaning, purpose, leadership. Uh, that, that kind of feeling of, of, of self-worth and national pride and so on. And this guy came along and through his, through his rhetoric and various other means, he was able to, to capture that and orient people in a certain direction, a horrible direction, but into a certain direction. I think this again happened um, for a much more modern day example, if you look at what happened throughout the, the so-called pandemic situation, early 2020. Um, this disease and virus comes out of somewhere it's got a, it's got a it's got a scary name and people are seeing videos of oh people are dropping in the streets and they're hearing this and they're hearing that and and it, it scares them they've just been living living their life and stuff has been fine you know not worrying about pandemics or plagues or anything and all of a sudden and then the media is there and they're scaring people and they're scaring people and politicians are saying this and there's all this uncertainty and fear and people free floating anxiety around and people need to follow, you know, that term Matthias Desmond, right? And, and people are looking to, for an outlet and to, to direct it somewhere. So it was very easy for various governments all around the world 
to shut people in their houses, to force people to do this, force them to cover their face, force them to do this and do that, all under the guise of health and safety and science and experts. Right, those four, those magic words that they just kept pumping out in every single country, and they managed to keep huge percentages of people in line on that. I mean, we're still seeing the aftershock effects of all of that. Um, and so... And people are ready to believe a lot of things which on the face of them are kind of nuts. Especially right? if other people are believing it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people don't necessarily want to be right. They want to be in the majority. They want to be in the majority. So that's a, an important thing for people to understand just about, about human nature. Um, it's hard to go against the grain in anything. It, it, we, we typically, humans typically will seek the path of le least resistance in, in most things, whether it is your, your diet and your exercise habits or it's, <laughs> or it's relationships or it's uh, even things related to career or finances or whatever it is. People will typically opt for the path of comfort, the path of least resistance, the path of least uh, confrontation or argumentation and so on. And, and that's understandable. I mean, most of us don't want to go around every single day like constantly arguing with people and involved in conflicts. And like, we, we like our lives to be relatively peaceful. But there's a line or there are lines where that's something you have to be very careful of, right? Are, are, are you saying something or doing something or, or not saying something or not doing something simply because you think you might be in the in the minority or because you, you know are you going or if you're going along with something are you doing it because you genuinely think that it's right and it's correct or is it just that oh well other people are doing it i mean our parents warned us about these things especially when you're a child when you're a teenager you know, if your parents will say, oh, well, you know, if your friends jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff, right? Don't do something just because. That's peer pressure, right? That's a power of peer pressure. And peer pressure isn't something that's unique to teenagers and children, you know, a friend passing them a cigarette or trying to get them to drink alcohol or something. It's, it's a, it affects us our entire lives, right? Um, we're social beings. We, we need to be able to get on with each other. We need to be able to have a cohesive and civil society and so on. And I'm also a, a, big, a big fan of that. But you also have to be willing to stand up and say no if you think that something is wrong or you think something is going too far, you think somebody is being mistreated, you see something that's wrong, you have to be able to call it out, even if you're the first person or the only person, um, because our default nature isn't necessarily to do so. But actually, if you get into the habit of doing that, then it does become, it does become a habit. It's Both. like a muscle, people have said. So I can say that yes. with you, you. <laughs> right? <laughs> you, get, you get used to it. You get used to it, exactly. You've got to put in the reps. But so, yeah, you, uh, you, know, you gave away that you, you're, you're into Matthias Desmet's thinking. Mm -hmm. You talked about free-floating anxiety. So uh, it sounds like, I'm going to take a guess here, that when you read or listened to, to him speak or read his book, Psychology of Totalitarianism, you thought to yourself, this makes perfect sense. That was mm -hmm. me, right, mm -hmm. as well. And I actually think it's one of the more important books of, of the recent of recent years for because it's just not a phenomenon, this mass formation phenomenon. It's not something where I think a lot of people are ready to believe can actually happen, but it's pretty obviously, it seems to me, is happening. Why is it, why, why is it so obvious to you when you look at this and you say, oh, yeah, but this makes perfect sense? Tell, tell me about that. As a non-psychologist, um, I wouldn't have been able to explain it in the same terminology that he does prior to this time. However, um, I am someone who is a, a non, for, for the past 20 years especially, especially with all the stuff I've had to do with my career and with my music and how I used to promote and sell my stuff, I've been studying human psychology unofficially for at least two decades at a, at a pretty deep level. And I've always been very interested in social dynamics and the way that human beings behave as individuals versus when they're in groups, right? The concept of mob mentality, for example, has always fascinated me because there's things that people will do when they're in a large group that they won't do by themselves, right? There's a difference in behavior between an individual and a group. Also, I, prior to any pandemic situation, I read books like the Gulag Archipelago. I read books like Ordinary Men because I was trying to understand. You, you look back at history and you think, how did that happen? How did that happen? And 
again, this takes a degree of humility because we, we need to remember that human beings haven't changed. We are the same, right? So if you're looking back at things that happened in the 1920s or the 1940s or the 70s or whatever, don't be so arrogant to assume like, oh, we've evolved. We've evolved. We haven't evolved at all, right? We've just got better toys, right? We are the exact same people with the exact same merits and flaws and issues. The only two advantages we have over our ancestors are better technology and access to history. Sometimes. That's, yes, if we choose to, <laughs> right? If we choose to. Like, those are really the only, we're, we're, not, we're not bigger or smarter or stronger. Like, we're, we're, the, we're the same flawed we're the same flawed human beings. And with that, you realize that those bad things that happened in history can happen again in some way, shape, or form, right? It can happen again. We're the same, I mean, people, people go back that far. What about, what about the Rwandan genocide in 1994? How did that happen? That's right. People forget about that one, or they never knew to begin with. Like, how, how, how did that happen, right? Neighbors turned on each other. About a million people killed in the course of a matter of months. With machetes. With machetes, right? Propaganda on the radio. Messages put out there by politicians. People caught up in this mass psychosis. I mean, that, that's perfect example of a, of a mass formation. Um, so I think the reason why from early on when I started to see some of these elements happening. I'm not talking about, you know, people, people being killed, but people, people buying into a certain narrative and not questioning it and people being shamed and attacked for questioning it and so on. Uh, you know, in tw early 2020, I'd never heard the term mass formation. I'd heard the term mass psychosis. Um, and I was like, all right, something is happening here. And the truth is not the truth. Again, that, that's that debasement. The, the people don't seem interested in the truth here, right? Doctors are being silenced. Scientists are being signed, right? You're only hearing from certain ones, right? There's, there's no room for dissent. There's no room for arguing. People are being called names and this and that. There's a very certain narrative. All these three-word sentences. I kept noticing three-word sentences, three-word sentences, right? Wash your hands. Um, practice social distancing. Wear a mask. Um, take the jab. Do this. Do that. It was a da-da-da, right? People, like people being programmed. Right. I noticed this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm super perceptive. Like I see things and I'm like, this is interesting. Even in different countries, the messaging, duh, 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 duh. every country. Right. Slightly different language, but oh, the same thing. And I was like, this is weird. And then lots of stuff which wasn't making sense. It, it, it didn't it didn't make sense. And it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, so that was that was why early on, I think I was able to see because I'd done that pre thinking. And I'd also thought I'm also aware of things like, the, you know, the uh, the Ash experiment, the Milgram experiments, the Stanford prison experiment, like how does human psychology play out in certain things? I myself have thought of these things and thought, ooh, in my life, if I'm ever in a situation that resembles anything like this in any way, how would I respond? Would I have the courage to say uh, that line is shorter, that line is shorter than that line, just because everyone else is saying that line is longer? Would I have the courage to say, yeah, and, and I'm like, I, I have to, right? If I see that uh, people are being hurt or are being discriminated, like, do I have the boldness to say something, right? Because if I don't, then aren't I just the same as all those people in the past in all these different situations who saw something happening that was really, really wrong, and they just put their head down and said, ah, you know, we, we, we need to ignore that. So I understand why people don't want to do this thinking because it's quite dark, and you have to get in touch with your dark side and humanity's dark side, and I think people generally prefer not to do that but I think it's important to do because otherwise you are even more prone for being manipulated by bad actors. You know, I, I'm just looking at your, the book behind you, The Candy Calamity. <laughs> this, is, this is your new kid's book. A really important theme in it, um, and I think it's incredibly important at this time um, in history, is personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's just not something a lot of kids are being taught. They're not being taught that, that they need to take responsibility for themselves. So thank you for, for a children's book that, that actually does that. <laughs> but uh, this personal responsibility has become something that's almost like a question. Like someone, it's, like, it's like someone else is supposed to take the responsibility. Is it the government? Is mm -hmm. it the people, the, the privileged people? Is it what, you know? So what are your thoughts? Sure. Um, I think that personal responsibility is another thing that has been sadly eroded over the course of the last few decades 
with society and culture. I mean, I think on a deeper, more philosophical level, I think this stems from various forms of thought and academia, which are promote the notion that human beings are somehow perfectible, right? They reject the notion of any type of original sin or religious thinking. And the idea is that human beings are these sort of blank slates and we're simply products of our environment. So if someone commits a crime or somebody does something that's bad or wrong, it's purely because of environmental and social factors. And if we just had this thing in the right place, then that person wouldn't have done it. It almost goes against this idea of free will. Mm. Um, this deterministic. Yeah, it's this deterministic yeah. kind of situation that, oh, you know, if someone is born into these conditions or they grow up in these conditions, then they have no control over their outcome and it's just a result. And I think this is an attractive thought. Number one, because it allows people to deny personal responsibility, um, but also because there is a, there, there's some truth in it, but they make it absolutist, right? We all recognize that the environment that you grow up in and your family situation and the level of poverty or crime around you or certain role models around you or whatever, we understand all of these things can influence and impact people's behavior. Pe human beings can absolutely be influenced. That's what we've, we've been discussing. But you do have, I, I believe people do have free will and you do make your own choices. Um, you don't choose the cards you're dealt, but you can choose how you play, how you play the hand, especially over the course of multiple decades. I I'd tell, you know, the situation you're born into, you have zero control over. The parents you're born to, no control. The country you're born in, no control. The time period you're born into, you have no control. You have no control over your genetics, all that. We have no control. Um, but where you end up over the long course of time, that is, that is largely up to you. Not, again, even not completely, there's random variables in there. There's people who, uh, you know, you could be in good health, good health and take care of your health and you, you could still, you could still get cancer. You could still get a random heart attack, right? Like there are many things that we are not totally in control of. So I'm a big advocate for the things which we are to take control and take responsibility of that. There are all these random variables. There are all these environmental factors and so on, but the one thing we can control, I, I can only control myself and my response and reactions to things. I can control my choices. I have control of that. No one else does, not the government, not even my parents and my family, not anyone I know, my friends, my acquaintances. I have control of that. Just like I pick what foods I wanna eat on a daily basis, I have the control of many other more important decisions. And the message to me about personal responsibility is number one, it's one of reality. And number two, it's actually a very empowering message. Because as I've said, there are so many things that we cannot control and that can feel disempowering, right? It can feel disempowering to not be able to control every single aspect. We certainly can't control other people and all of their decisions and so on, but it's empowering. It should be empowering to people to go, hey, you know what? Like, despite all that, I've got, I've got that certain control over my body and I can act as a force in the world to make good decisions and make wise decisions which will lead to an increase in my own happiness and other people's happiness and my ability and my potential and what I'm trying to orient myself towards in a personal direction and if I want to have a family, you know, the family I come from and the family that you go on and create, all of that. It's like amazing. You've got, you've got, you've got great control over that. So. This is a message that I, I wish were pushed more. I think we talk too much now in the West about rights and not enough about responsibility. And talking about rights is really important. I've, I've been, I talk about rights a lot, but you always have to couple it with responsibility because with every right comes a responsibility. And I think there's so much focus on that first part. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. This is my right. Me, 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 me. It's, it's really narcissistic and immature. And people then reject the idea that you then, there's, there's a responsibility that comes with that. And I think it's also dangerous to disregard that because if you don't, then that power will be outsourced elsewhere. It will, it will be outsourced to the state. It will be outsourced to somebody else who can then have control over you and manipulate you and you know, do, do your bidding. But the, the rights part only works 
with the responsibility part. And this goes for many issues, hot button topics here in the USA even. Uh, there's lots of control right now about guns, gun rights, right? I, I, I support the Second Amendment. Most British people probably don't. I support the Second Amendment. Um, but if you are, if you are a gun owner, if you, you have a right to own a firearm, then you have a responsibility, a big responsibility, actually, that comes with that, right? If you want to just talk about us as human beings, as a species that reproduces, and we all have the capacity and ability to reproduce and a right to reproduce, you, you've, you've got to be careful with that, right? You've got to be smart. You have to make good, you have to make good decisions. You were talking about your uh, support of the Second Amendment. I, I can't help but remembering that, you know, you yourself were at one point taken down by the equivalent of something like a SWAT team mistake in a case of mistaken identity. And some people might wonder, like, in this situation, and you weren't treated well. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you have a situation which a lot of people today would say, you know, is 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 terrible and representative of, of you know, the, the bad way our society has gone. How could you support the Second Amendment? Um, I mean, if that's the way someone thinks of it, they should support it even more. Because that was the police that did that. So if people are thinking that the police are the problem or that the police can't be relied on to protect their lives and other people, then to me that sounds like an argument in favor of a Second Amendment. I mean, that's, I've, never, I've never even viewed my situation through that lens, but if anything, that would have been an, an outcome that, that comes of it. Um, in terms of that particular incident, though, it's, a, it's not something I really think about that much. What happened was, you know, it was a case of, I was, I'd been out promoting my music one day, I came back home, I was at a train station, and there was a mistaken identity case, they thought I was somebody I wasn't, they thought I was someone who'd threatened someone with a firearm in a city I hadn't even been to that day, and two firearm units were sent out and were dispatched to uh, stop the train and arrest me. So that was a very strange situation um, on multiple levels. But, I mean, there were many lessons taken from it, but um, I, I don't use, I don't know, I don't generally, number one, I don't like to get hung up on any type of victimhood narrative, like it would be easy for me in the many years after that to kind of perceive myself as some kind of victim of injustice or something, which I, you know, temporarily was in that case. That was, that was an injustice. It's not something that should have happened, nor something that was fair because I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but I'm here. Life goes on. As, as I said earlier, you can't control every random thing that happens to you, and sometimes sucky things just happen. But you can control how you react and respond, right? If I'd made a really stupid reaction, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Right? So even if you do find yourself in that type of situation, my key to most important takeaway I can say to anyone is if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're, uh, you've got guns pointed at you and police arresting you for something that you have not done and you have no idea what's going on, comply. Just comply and um, stay alive and then deal with it later. If you are innocent, then you've got very little to worry about in that scenario. Just stay calm and stay alive, and then you can deal with it later and find out what happened. Don't be reckless, don't uh, try to fight, don't try to fight them off, or that, that's how so many of these situations end up, end up tragic, in these rare incidents where you know, people are unjustifiably killed by police. Oftentimes, it escalates because they're trying, to, they're trying to fight them, or they're trying to run away, or they themselves pull out, just, yeah, it's not fun, it's not pleasant. Hopefully, <laughs> no, no, no one listening to this ever has to go through something like that. But that's really the key takeaway. That's the response that you can, that's the part you can control is the response. So let's go back to Roe. Sure. Roe v. Wade. And there's a lot of people saying, you know, it's the end of, you know, fund some foundational rights for women. There's other people that are saying this, is, this has been a wrong decision for 50 years. It's caused a lot of death of unborn children. Um, you actually, you, you have a quite interesting take, and I want to I want to explore that actually. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I have a lot of takes on this. I mean, I guess the the first two is firstly, it seems very clear to me that most Americans don't know what Roe versus Wade even is, let alone non-Americans. Right? People are now saying that this is even a lot of politicians are saying that this now means that abortion is federally banned across the USA or something like that. That's strongly what they're outright saying or hinting at, which is just wrong. It simply means that it goes back to a state decision. Um, my understanding of the case from the 70s is that it was a bad decision to begin with because it 
people are claiming that abortion is a constitutional right, which is by definition, it's not. It's not in the constitution, never was. And so that decision shouldn't have been made in the first place as far as I'm concerned. So that's the first part. Number two is I am very openly pro-life. I'm against abortion. I have been for many years at this point, and I don't hesitate to say that. Again, I don't need to speak in euphemism. Um, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a deeply immoral thing, in fact. Um, and so it, I think the way that the UF, from, from the governmental perspective, I think that it, is, it should be a state's right issue. So I think that it's the right decision that was made. Um, number two is that is that the reality is for a lot of states it's not going to change anything it just means that they can confirm what they already have or what they already wanted to confirm um but i think the perhaps the best it, it's it's the most unpleasant part of it but perhaps the best thing that come one of the best things that comes out of this is bringing the moral and legal conversation to the for, the forefront again um, I'll be honest with you, there's no topic I hate discussing as much as abortion. I, I really hate it, and I think a lot of people hate discussing it, which is why, why it's shied away from, because it's, it's a life and death issue, it's so personal, there, there's such, people have such strong feelings about it, understandably, and so on, on both sides of the issue, or multiple sides of the issue. Um, but as a society that's trying to improve and get better, you have to be willing to have uncomfortable and unpleasant conversations. You have to be willing to listen to people who disagree with you or you may think that their views are completely wrong or crazy or immoral or this or that and, and it can be it can be exhausting. Um, but I think it's good that in the USA, which by the way is an extremely young country, I always tell my American friends that this country is a teenager. As far as countries go, this is a teenager. So I think it's good. Sometimes the culture war stuff can get tiring but it's it's good that people are having these conversations. It's good that people are arguing about gun rights and the role of guns in society. It's good that people are discussing and sharing their thoughts and opinions on issues such as abortion because these things need to be need to be out in the in, in the open. Um, and I, I get that it's hard. I get that it's unpleasant. But um, this is one issue where I think that the current status quo is completely wrong. I actually think it's abhorrent. Um, and this is not unique to the USA. Uh, you know, in many Western countries, I think this is one where people really, really miss the mark. So the status quo, I, I assume you mean, you know, basically prevalently available abortion as a sort of a common way of dealing with pregnancy. Is that, is that what you mean when you say? I mean, that is the status quo. It's what, about 800,000, 900,000 a year in this country? I think in my country, about 170, 180,000 per year. Um, those, those are not, you know, people try, people try to trot out this line that it's, you know, just about, uh, you know, like extremely rare circumstances or something like that. It, it's not. That's not, that's not the truth. And the truth is that many people advocating, not all, but many people advocating for it, um, you know, simply want it to be on demand, oftentimes with no limits. And um, yeah, I think that's abhorrent, to put it simply. Um, as I, I, I've, to me, it's morally as abhorrent as, <laughs> it's honestly, it's morally as abhorrent as, as slavery or something like that. Like, it's not even, I think society's in such a dark place where millions of people can think that that is not even morally neutral, but like there's people advocating that that's some type of moral good or that it's pro-social or that it's overall good for society for all sorts of reasons that I consider heinous. And um, yeah, so we need to talk about that. In the past, there was this sort of, um, I don't know if it's a mantra exactly, but it was, it was something, it was uh, rare was one of those three Safe, words. Safe, legal, right? and rare. Safe, legal, and rare. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So. Um, and then it just kind of turned into something, turned into something else. Now it's on demand, on demand, any reason, anytime, any place. Um, you know, that's again not not everyone. There are still the, I guess I'd call it, you could call them like '90s li '90s liberals or classical liberals who sort of maintain the safe, legal, and rare position. Although that in itself doesn't really make sense, um, because if there is that type of 
moral weight to it, then the rare part doesn't really make sense if your argument is that it's of no more moral equivalent uh, value or then you know difference than clipping a toenail or you know getting an appendix removed or something then the rare part doesn't really hold up there's examples of situations where you know it it might be reasonable the people that are, that believe in the rare part mm -hmm. right that there's the idea would be that the moral position would be this is a this isn't a good thing to do mm -hmm. but there in some circumstances it might be acceptable mm -hmm. right and the, as opposed to the position that it's never acceptable yeah, well, the, 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 the fact is that those rarities that people often point to make up, in many cases, under 2% of all of it. So, and the, the, it, it's really a rhetorical trick because if I say, okay, well, if we say there's allowances for that 2%, are you okay with you know, condemning the other 98%, let alone banning the other 98%? Of course, they'll jump and say no, right? Because that's not really their, that's not really the, the position. And it's, it's a dishonest position as well, you know. There are, there are situations where a homicide is justifiable, right? But you wouldn't use the one or two percent cases where homicide is justifiable to try to justify homicide in general. That would be insane, right? That would be ridiculous. Like, we recognize there are situations, self-defense, right? If someone, you know, if you have a gun and someone runs up and puts a gun to your head and you shoot them before... <laughs> they shoot you or someone's about to kill someone next to you and you have the ability to get the jump on them, then that is a self-defense case. That's a homicide, right? War. War is, if, you know, especially on a defensive end, you know, you're defending your, your nation or something like that, then that's, that's a justifiable homicide. But you wouldn't take that and say, okay, so the other 98, 99 percentages uh, chance times when people kill, take another person's life, that's okay because those ones are okay. So for me, it's, it, it, again, it's just another trick. I think if someone wants to have an honest conversation about those edge cases, then that can be had. But oftentimes those edge cases are being jumped to immediately to try to justify the entire position. And it's only done on this one issue, um, which to me is just disingenuous and, and dishonest. And I'll be honest, with this whole conversation, you you really want to go upstream as well on the conversation because by the time you're discussing discussing that issue of abortion then uh, uh, something's already gone very wrong further upstream and we need to have that conversation you mean in that's, society in general yeah and with individual decision making we all know how babies are made right we all know how babies are made there are various options there is abstinence there is contraception there is parenthood there is adoption those four choices you know morally are, are fine. There's the, the, nobody, nobody is, nobody's getting killed in any of those choices. So I wish people would again be honest and stop pretending that it's like impossible to not get a woman pregnant or for a woman not, like there are, there are so many, there's never been more options before. It's never been easier for that not to happen, right? But I guess your case is that in a world where you don't have personal responsibility, then... This is the outcome. This is the natural outcome, and that, that, that's, that's my point. This is the, when you erode personal responsibility and you give people an easy out for everything, essentially, then they are going to adjust their behaviors accordingly on mass, not just individually, but on mass. And you, you can see how over the past few decades that has changed, right? Let's be honest. There's a lot of people who just think, you know, you, just, you should just be able to do... You should be able to do whatever you want, exercise every right, have none of the responsibilities, suffer none of the consequences. There's people who basically think that that is the case. And I push back very strongly against that entire notion. And I don't think that's something you want to be teaching future children and future generations, because I think it'll just degrade and debase society even further. And 20 years down the line, if you keep going on that path, I mean, Lord knows where things would be in 20, 30 years from now. Well, so... As we finish up, um, you know, so you're, I mean, you're essentially saying that, that we, our society, our children, our people, we need strong moral principles yes. that we base things on. Now, to, traditionally, that's been provided by religion, but that's another thing that's, that religion is another thing that's been eroded, like you said, exactly, I mean, in some ways, very deliberately. And when you look at some of these protests right now, people there's a lot of people that are specifically protesting religion, mm -hmm. not just abortion. I, mm -hmm. That's one of the things I've observed, right? 
So what's the way forward? And what's, and what's interesting is they're the ones who bring in the religious angle, right? I, I, I don't, in this whole conversation and this whole topic, I rarely, I, I, don't, I never quote script, scripture or discuss religion because you can just totally stay in the realm of biology and rationale and logic to make the strongest arguments. You don't need to say, well, it says right here in the Bible or in the Quran, this thing. Um, but I think the way forward is, you know, I think there are, there are multiple paths. I am a Christian and I still think that Christianity and traditional religions are a strong path forward when it comes to moral and finding moral, um, moral guidance, purpose, meaning, ways to live your life that have worked for billions of people um, successfully. I still think that is a very good answer and not an answer that should be, should be thrown away. Um, I mean, I also think that people need to uh, do, some, do some soul searching and, and, and some thought. I think it's very easy in this time with all these distractions and all these options to kind of live your life, especially as a you know, teenager, young adult, you know, even going into someone's middle age and, and never, really, never really do that much thinking and just kind of like you're just on this treadmill and kind of you're just this leaf that's blowing around in the wind and going around with whatever is happening in society and whatever celebrities tell you or politicians or experts are telling you and you're just going along with that blowing in the wind and you never really think about your own principles and where they come from and how you should live a good life and so on. Now, there's different ways people can orient themselves and different ways that people can live good, wholesome, purposeful, righteous lives. I, I don't think I'd be being honest if I said that, you know, my religion is the, is the only way forward. Um, so I think that's absolutely still an answer for, still an answer for billions of people around the world um, and should continue to be so. Uh, but for someone who, for whatever reason, is not interested in that or just simply doesn't believe, I'm, I'm totally aware that not everyone is a, is, a, is a person of faith. I believe there are other ways that one can certainly find senses of purpose and morality and ethical guidance um, and stay away from nihilism and destruction and anti-human attitudes and behaviors. Maybe they can, you know, look at some of your feeds, listen a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> no, because I do, I, I appreciate your commentary because yeah. it's, I find it to be very, frankly, positive and proactive and calling people to be responsible yeah. in a, in a fair and reasonable way, I think. Man, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the truth is, and I want everyone to really understand this, even people who disagree with a lot of what I say or some of what I say, is that I do, I love humanity. I love people. I love people. As much as they can annoy me and as stupid as I feel like people can be sometimes, like I ultimately have like a very deep love for humanity and for my fellow man. And to be religious, I do believe that we are all reflections of God's image. And I take that seriously in how I conduct myself in this world. Um, and so what I say and what I'm advocating for, that's where it stems from. It stems from genuinely wanting to see people fulfill their potential and wanting to you know, live good, upstanding, purposeful lives for themselves, for their families, for their future children, for the world as a whole, for the next generation. Because if we can all maximize our potential, at least strive to, right? Not everything is always about achieving the pinnacle of everything, right? Like that, that's not possible, but at least having standards and striving to achieve them. Everything, you know, our, our health, exercise, nutrition, spiritual, mental, educational, societal, all of these things, if you've at least got, okay, this year's the standard, we should strive towards that then that's really important. And what concerns me of the, is this idea that there's, there's no standard, right? Like there's no standard, just do, do what you want, just seek short-term pleasure and thrill and you know, don't worry about tomorrow, don't worry about the next generation. I don't think that's good. Well, Zuby, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, man, I appreciate it. Thank you all for joining Zuby and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.